Well, thanks again for listening to the Park Hills podcast. This week, we're going to dive into Exodus 3 and some of the things that go along with that. If you're interested in more of Exodus and you want to hear the sermons that go along with this or the other podcasts we have, all of that is available at parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. It's time to get into our weekly podcast. Hey, <laughs> we are happy about it. Aren't yeah, we? I actually really am. <laughs> hey, you know, I know that there's a lot of people out there that really appreciate Pastor Chris, and if you're looking for some gift ideas for him, um, I, I, I recommend you go deeply into the text of Scripture, find the most obscure thing you can, <laughs> and then ask Chris a question about it because. In the unlikely event that he doesn't know the answer to that, you will then send him into a two to three week tailspin of study and flurry to, so that he can find the answer to that obscure question, because that is Chris. And, and that's what I, I love about you, Chris. You are a man who loves the word and you uh, love finite details. Now, that's a, that's a nice You're thing. You're saying this as if you've seen this happen before <laughs> a time or two. Yeah, well, yes. And... <laughs> And, and finite details might be a nice thing, a nice way of saying some of the things that that, that, that do interest you and make you curious and send you down uh, rabbit trails and, and uh, or rabbit holes for more details. But really, anyway. Really quickly, Heidi has multiple times said to me, why does, why does your brain do what your brain does? <laughs> I don't know. Can't help it. Stuck. I'm stuck it with it. It might be a disease. Yes. Anyway, uh, so uh, we're going to... Uh, dig into Chris's nerdiness today, and uh, and see what we can discover in that. And uh, good luck. So let's let's talk. You know, I even wore my nerd glasses. You, I'm so ready for this. You today. did. I hope the people of the podcast can see them. Oh wait, I will say uh, occasionally though they hit the microphone as I'm. Oh yeah, talking and that's not good. So. Well, that's when you're getting so excited and you're really leaning into the subject. Yes, which is actually just a microphone. <laughs> so. We we've got some ites and in the in the scripture. We've got uh Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and other ites, parasites and things like that. <laughs> so we, we we need to maybe work through some of this a little bit. And we've got Moses in Midian, as we've been uh following his life here. And we've got it okay, so is Midian in Canaan or, or what are we talking about here? So Yes and no. Uh, the Midianites are, like we mentioned in the first sermon, they're a group of people that are offshoots of Abraham. So Abraham had another kid way after he had, Ishmael was the first kid, right? And then he has another kid named Isaac. And then later on, after his wife dies, he has multiple other wives. One of them is has a kid named Midian. Midian sets up shop. They become a bunch of, uh, I don't know, traders would probably be the best way to say it. They're, they're nomadic people. And they live just south of the border of Israel. And, you know, if you were thinking about it on a, on a big map, they are basically just east of the Gulf of Aquaba. And if you're like, where's the Gulf of Aquaba? That'd be... As right, if people don't know. Right? Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if you were like modern day Dubai or, uh, you know, Qatar, 
basically it's the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula. So if you're looking at a map, you're not, you know, it, it's it, it's a little tiny Gulf of Aquaba. It's I don't know the Sinai Peninsula makes a, a V, right, a triangle. One side of it is what we would call the Gulf of Suez, or the or some people call it the Red Sea. The other side of it is the Gulf of Aqaba. So it's just basically right there. So the Midianites are set up just south of that. You could say that one of the lists of the land of Canaan or the promised land in the scriptures actually includes part of that land, but not really. So it, basically they just live on the very edge of what you'd expect, which creates a ton of problems when we're talking about like burning bushes and things like that. Like where is Mount Sinai? Where's the burning sure. bush? There's yep. really, we'll get into this in later podcasts, but there's really no way to tell uh, for sure where it is. There, there's multiple mountains that are possible. You know, the typical one that they've built a, Cathedral on top of Jebel Musa is debated. They're all debated. None of them are, are set in stone. So with that said, you've got um, a ton of individuals that are tied to Abram. You've got Midian, right? You've got Moab and Edom. Edom would be the, the offshoots of Esau. Moab would be the, the son of one of Lot's daughters. And then you've got Ishmael, right? All of them are settled in this region all around the land of Canaan, but they're not really the tribes that you just mentioned. All the ites that we were talking about as far as the, the promised land goes, and we'll get to those in a couple of seconds here, those ites are different than the ites that we're talking about here. So the Midianites, Moabites, Edomites, those are all offshoots of Abraham, and they're just on the very edge of what we would call Israel even today. So super nerdy, fun. Wasn't that super interesting? It was. <laughs> so you're describing there uh, where Midian is, not so much where Canaan is. Correct. Midian, if you're thinking about Midian, and, and by the way, none of these things have borders. Like we think about it today, you know, the state of Illinois, there's a moment when you cross the border into Wisconsin and it says, hey, welcome to Wisconsin, land of cheese and beer and things. I don't know, Packers. I don't know. We, we, have, very <laughs> definitive, we have very definitive borders today. Uh, we've decided those things by surveyors and other stuff. Back in this day, you didn't have that. You sure. might have a group of family that live together and then another family lives nearby them that are relatives and so on and so forth. And you would call that the land of Midian. But if you're a, a, a nomadic tribe like the Midianites are, they don't really ever have a country that's theirs. They're just wherever they're sitting that day feeding their sheep. Wherever the grass might be right, green. That's where they are. So where Midian mostly did their work would be just, like I said, just east of the Sinai Peninsula, kind of in the middle of nowhere. But it's on the very edge of what what Israel would claim their territory today is what I'm trying to say. Okay. So where is Canaan? So Canaan itself, there, if, if you've ever studied the Bible and you've dug into this a little bit, you might realize there are multiple lists of what the promised land, and I'm putting that in quotes. Is. Yeah, they, they vary a little bit. There are multiple descriptions and the East and the West borders of the land of promise are easy because you have a Mediterranean sea. Mm-hmm. You cannot draw a line in ocean. You cannot draw. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great old story of ours that Mark <laughs> shared in a sermon. Just If you're a faithful Park Hills person, you know that story. If you don't, go find the sermon. It's worth it. It is. Uh, it's, yeah. It's, it's one to treasure. A group of Indians tried to teach us, and I mean from India. not True. Yeah, yeah true yeah, Indians. They were teaching us cricket. I asked a dumb question. They made fun of me. It was good. So the Mediterranean Sea. Chris just wanted to know where the the outside border of the (laughs) game was. And the guy Uh, looks at him and says, listen, you cannot draw a line in ocean. (laughs) In fairness, I'm asking if if we hit into the ocean, is it a home run or is it an out? It was like a home run. But the Mediterranean Sea, you cannot build something on the sea. So that that creates a nice, sharp western edge. So we have a western edge. Right. So the promised land is always that. And then the eastern part of the promised land is always going to be the Jordan River. 
Yep. There are a couple of tribes that set up just east of that in what we would call the Transjordan, but that's not technically the promised land as God gives sure. it. So the east and west is set. The north can go as far north as Mount Hermon or even a little higher into what we would call modern-day Syria, Lebanon, all of that. There's a couple of spots in Scripture where the Israelites are promised all of that, even all the way to the Euphrates, which would be way further north than that. So that would include, uh, you know, way beyond Syria and Lebanon into almost modern-day Iraq. So it could be that high, high north. And then there are some spots in Scripture where the the southern border of the Promised Land could be as far south as Sinai, which would include the Midianites at that point and sure. elsewhere. So the descriptions that are given are all over the place. The, where Israel mostly sets up, Beersheba becomes the southern border. And Beersheba, if you're thinking about it, if you're looking at a map with me right now, and, and I'll, I'll post one in the show notes for you that you can kind of pop open and look at it yourself. The south end of the Dead Sea is almost right in line with where Beersheba is. So if you think about the Dead Sea being the southern border mm-hmm. and then the northern part of the border being Mount Hermon, that's where Dan settles in the book of Judges. Mount Hermon is the highest peak in all of, of the region in the Middle East. It's a really easy location to say that's the northern border. So most of the time in Israel, we're talking about that. And even today, if you go to Israel, which, you know, next January, we're hoping to do we, that. We might just get there. We're hoping. Uh, 2023, if we, we're going to go to Mount Hermon and stand there, and you're looking across yeah. the border into Syria at that point, it's that close. So that's kind of where Canaan is. It's So it's... If you think about it this way, the region of Hermon all the way down to the edge of the Dead Sea, and then you've got the border of the Mediterranean Sea on one side and then the Jordan River on the other. And you've touched on this a little bit already with, you know, so all these ites, who are the uh, the ites of, of Canaan? And again, I know that, that it's a little bit subjective to whether or not, you know, how, how far north we call Canaan, sure. and, you know, and how far south it goes. But uh We've got some lists, but there's some variances in those lists, aren't there? There are. So the two big ones that we usually go to, there's there's a few spots in Scripture where it's seven names. And so you'll hear even Jesus reference the seven kingdoms. That's part of the reason why people think the feeding of the 4,000 ends with seven baskets of food. Just like the feeding of the 5,000 ends with 12 baskets of food, which clearly is an indication to Israel. Twelve tribes. Right, yeah. 12 tribes, 12 disciples, that kind of stuff. The feeding of the 4,000, which is in Gentile land, ends with seven baskets of food. And most people are like, oh, that's got to be the seven tribes of the Canaanites who all get knocked out. The problem is there's no single list anywhere in Scripture that says these are the seven or these are the six. Mm -hmm. So six, seven, or all the way up to ten. So here's the list of ten that we get in Genesis 15, 8. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, or the Rephaimites, that'd be another way to say it, uh, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. That's in Genesis 15.8. In Judges 3.5, it says these tribes still live in the land and therefore live alongside the Israelites. And those six are this, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Hivites. So those six plus one of the other ones from the top list of ten, usually you'll notice that, that there's six that match both of those lists. And there's four tribes that are just kind of floating out there. One of those usually gets shoved in to become the seventh one sure. in a number of places of scripture, but it never, it's never standard. There's no spot in scripture where we're like, Oh, this is clearly the ones uh, it, it, it moves around a little bit. Some of the names and part of that's because the Bible is written at different points in time and different tribes might've been named different things or different. They may have moved and totally. Yeah. 
especially the Midians, always on the move. Totally um, always on the move. And and for like where they are, you know, the Canaanites, there really isn't a tribe ever that's called the Canaanites. The Can- the word Canaan and Canaanite in scripture seems to just be talking about anybody who kind of matches the land of Canaan. So in that sense, it could be the Philistines, right? Notice that that wasn't one of the names that I just read out of the Ites. Uh, what the Philistines do with their worship seems to be closest to what would be considered Canaanite in other parts of Scripture. Um, you could c- include the Amalekites in that, because I wasn't in that list either, and the Amalekites are just south of Israel, but they, they, they act like Canaanites as well. The word Canaan and the Canaanite practice typically seems to be worship of Baal or some other version of fertility god or goddess and some really dark practices along with that. The Amorites are a group that's from north of the Euphrates, and they kind of move down into the Dead Sea region and live there. Uh, they are very despicable, very poorly looked upon. They're kind of the downtrodden group. Um, you know, to kind of give you an idea, there's some connection with the Amorites and Sodom and Gomorrah. So if Sodom okay. and Gomorrah gets wiped out, you're like, okay, that's, you know, that would have been one of their cities is what I'm saying. Sure. Not, not all of the Amorites live there. Uh, and then, you know, you've got uh, the Jebusites are connected to the region around Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was actually named Jebus before David takes it over. That's where you get Jebusites from and so on and so forth. So I could keep going and going and going with all the nerdiness of the names, but nobody really <laughs> cares. So I'll move on. But the, the idea of the list of these ites, these are the groups of people that are living in the region and all get either pushed out by the Israelites or their tribe actually gets or nation gets knocked out by either death or famine yeah. or something else. It's uh, it's it's a little bit tough because it is fluid, like you said. There's you know, there's just things that we aren't certain about. We just can put these different lists together from different areas and go, okay, this is what we think we know. But there is some has to be some room for flexibility. So let's get let's get wild here and talk about okay, when does the exodus happen? No idea, (laughs) Chris. Moving on. It's when Pharaoh said, "Fine, take your people and go." Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, That's a really good answer, Mark. Uh, The problem is we don't know what Pharaoh this is. This is one of the beautiful things about Exodus that we'll talk about even in weeks ahead as we dive further into the, the book. We never know the name of the Pharaoh. All we know is that he's building cities known as Ramses and Pithom, which are store cities for the, the grain. That does date it a little bit, but it's not as clear as you'd like it to be because did a later person who was led by the Holy Spirit to move it to the modern name as opposed to the ancient name? That's one of the arguments people would give. So if Pithom and Ramses used to be called, you know, I don't remember what they were called, but name, you know, Amarna and something else, if that name got changed to Pithom later on, was it written originally as the first name and then they later just changed it to Pithom because it would have made sense to the writers? Or at the time of Moses, it was called Pithom. He would have never called it the other name and so it wouldn't have never mattered. Sure. We, don't, we just don't know. We, we aren't clear as to where this goes and, and how it all plays out. The two dates that people fight about the most, if you're looking in scholarship, are 1450 B.C. and 1250 B.C. And those seem to be the most likely but no one knows for sure. And, and the reason why no one knows for sure is there are significant problems with dating the Exodus both inside and outside the text of Scripture. So some would say, well, I don't really care what the science is or what the archaeology says. I know when it happened because Scripture says this. The Scriptures aren't even clear because there's portions where it talks about certain people groups that only existed at a certain time, but yet there's other spots where they're named something different or a name is, you know, a different type of name or a different name of a city. Sometimes the same city is mentioned in the book of Exodus itself two different times with two different names. One is the old name, one is the new name. And you go, 
Sure. So what does that mean? Does that mean that they left Israel or sorry, they left Egypt early and went to the promised land or, and so therefore they used the old name and then later on they added the new name for the people who, you know, were helping put this part together. We don't know. Or is it, you know, an indication of uh, it being the late date? We don't know. So the 1450 BC, the reason why that one in the text makes the most sense is because Solomon says about 480 years after the Israelites left Egypt, we built the temple. So that would be right around that time because Solomon built a temple in nine, just you know, right around 960 BC. So that's 480 years from then. And that, that seems to work out great. Everybody loves that. The problem is, like I said, there's a ton of names and the archaeological evidence, 1250 BC seems to make the most sense because at that time, the, the land of Canaan was, was wiped out. And, and I'll explain that in just a second. So whether you're an old date, you know, late date or an, or an early date uh, of... So the late date would be 1250 BC. The early date would be 1450 BC. Either one of those, you can make sense of it in the text, but the text sometimes goes against itself. And I would actually say part of the reason for that is we don't need to know the date. And I, and I would actually say part of the reason why I think God confuses us a little bit with the text is he's less concerned about whether you know when it happened. He wants you to see what happened, trust that it happened, and, and go with it there. Yeah, don't miss the point. I mean, yeah. you're missing the forest for the trees kind of thing. The other part of it too is, and I'm going to show you this in a second, is this is the a very violent area in a very violent age. So, for example, we, you know, just to nerd out for a minute, the early Bronze Age, three twenty, sorry, three hundred twenty to to two thousand BC. So three thousand two hundred to two thousand. That's what I meant to say. So three thousand two hundred to two thousand BC. That's a period of about twelve hundred years. In that period of time, Canaan is walled villages. So you've got family members of up to 100, maybe 200 people living in a village, they would build a wall around the city and protect themselves. And so they all lived in these walled villages. They were pretty family set. This would have been just before Abram gets into the land. Okay. So just imagine, you know, Hebron or, uh, you know, Jebus having this hill that they live on and they just sort of build themselves a little wall around it. And they're like, we're protected right now. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens in between 2000 and 1550 BC, which is the Middle, age, Middle Bronze Age, Egypt finds out that there's value in the Middle East. And so they actually move north and start conquering the land to the point where they actually make a deal in Damascus and start taking the, the cedars of Lebanon down the Red Sea or down the, the Mediterranean Sea into the Nile. And they use them to build throughout that 2000 to 1550 uh, BC timeframe. So we actually have scripture. Uh, inscriptions of the Egyptians in various places in Israel that have lasted from that time. So between 2000 BC and 1550 BC, the Egyptians are actually in charge of Canaan. And what's interesting about that is the, the Egyptians being in charge, they told everybody you're not allowed to build walls anymore. So all of the cities would have been totally defenseless. There's no fortifications whatsoever. There's Egyptian storehouses and craziness going on. So you're like, okay, so in that time frame, it's really peaceful. The Egyptians are in charge. Everything's going great. Well, then around 1580 uh, BC or just a little after, one of the groups of Canaanites decides to go down and conquer Egypt, and they're called the Hyksos. Have you heard, heard of them? Really? No. Yeah, so it's a super, it's interesting to me. Some people don't even know about it. They don't care. But they, they are Semitic and, and Asian. They, so there's, there's actually inscriptions in Egypt of people with beards taking over and creating a kingdom of themselves, and they declare themselves Pharaoh and all that kind of stuff. They look more Middle Eastern than they look Egyptian, right? Because the Egypt, Egyptians believed in shaving all their hair off and all that right. kind of stuff. So the Hyksos take over. They're actually like relatives of Joseph and family. And so the Hyksos, they take over. They, they declare themselves pharaohs, and they 
form what we call the 15th and 16th dynasties of Egypt. And they rule a huge part of the country until they're driven out in 1532 BC, right before Egypt starts to move out of the land. And right after, you know, if you're following the timeline that I just gave you, that 1550 BC was the end of the Middle Bronze Age. So now there's really nobody in charge. It kind of becomes chaotic. People start fighting each other. And then they start building bigger walled cities again. So one of the things that you talk about with the 1450 BC date, if that's the case, that actually would line up really well because if the Hyksos are in charge, they have hair, right? They have facial hair. They're, they're, they're Pharaoh. If a, if a person came down and gave a dream of their God and said, this is what's going to happen to you. There's going to be seven years of, of, of plenty and then seven years of famine. They might be more interested in following that guy's advice because he's a family member or a distant relative of theirs. Sure. So there's a, so then when you read Exodus one and it says a Pharaoh came along who didn't know Joseph or the rest of the family and starts to enslave the Egyptian or the Israelites. Might add, add a lot of meaning to yep. that. So there's yep. a ton of people that think that's probably the time frame of when this happens, that, that Joseph was probably coming into town right around when the Hyksos were getting, losing their power, but still in charge. And Joseph saves their kingdom for a little while. And then all of a sudden they all get expelled except for the Israelites. They, they're allowed to stay because there's some kind of connection and they want slaves and then the Pharaoh comes along and says this. Now, the question then is, how many years of slavery did they have before they were free? Yeah, because that affects this date. Yeah. Right. And the 1450 date doesn't make a ton of sense there. However, them moving into the land right before everything gets walled off again would be a really good move. If they come into the town around 1250 BC, there are walled cities that are massive and crazy. And so people are like, that doesn't seem to make sense for a bunch of wandering farmers. But it also makes a ton of sense that why Jericho would, would have to be marched around to, to conquer. Sure. So then I so so do you see how already in the text, like you can go back and forth on these dates over and over and over again. What's what's crazy about the twelve fifty date and the idea of Jericho being destroyed, right around twelve fifty, twelve sixty BC, all the way to twelve hundred BC, there's this group of people that come out of nowhere. Uh, the Bible calls them sea peoples. The other writings all around the region call them sea peoples. These sea peoples actually attack Egypt. Egypt moves out of the Middle East again and, and surrounds their power down in, in, in Egypt and tries to like protect their land from these sea peoples. One of those groups becomes known as the Philistines. Wow. So just think about what I just said. How many times power got changed, fighting happened, all that stuff, and cities are being buried in those times. So when people say things like, well, there's no evidence of the Israelites leaving Egypt in the Exodus. Well, I wouldn't expect there to be because whether we're talking about 1450 or 1250, either way, every city got raised, and, and that I mean R-A-Z-E-D, so destroyed, just yeah. completely wiped out at least three times in, that, in those 200 years, whatever that is. So then when you get to Jericho and you're like, well, now you've got this wall falling down, you've got these people being wiped out, it matches a bunch of other stuff that's going on. Yeah, there, there's, I wouldn't expect there to be a record of the Israelites in that early period there because it's so chaotic and crazy and the Israelites are doing some of the raising themselves. So, okay, so if you followed that, we don't know when the Exodus happened. However, what we do know is that during this period, and I'll say between 2000 BC and 1250 BC, there are major political, argumentative, militaristic fighting things happening where cities are just getting destroyed. And then at the end of the day, we're like, we don't even know what's going on. And there's no way to dig for it because, you know, you destroy a city, you go to rebuild it. You're going to use the old parts of the city to rebuild your new walls and so on and so forth. So, you know, even if an archaeologist dug and was like, this is from 1250 BC, I doubt it because those rocks could have been used from the original 
when it got destroyed and whatever sure. and so on and so forth. Does that help at all? And, yeah, and that would make a lot of sense too. Well, we're having a good time in the in the recesses of Chris's mind today, aren't we? You're like, I did not sign up for this. But you did, Mark. Are you with us, people? Have you stayed with us? Yeah. Some of them and are like, now I'm... recite that back, please. Exactly. Recite all that. I, I think one of the key questions then becomes, what do we do with all this? You know, we've got so much here. And um, I think you've touched on it a little bit already in, in just saying, you know, some of these things we don't know, and if God wanted us to know the exact things, he would have done that. Um, and I think that was sort of the beauty of our tour through the Bible last year and sure. looking at the themes and going, okay, yeah, it's great to look at all the details, but don't miss the story. Don't miss sure. these themes that you just can't miss as you look through Scripture. And, uh, you know, the details are, are fun. And, and I know you, you in particular just love them. Um, but what do we do with them? Yeah, so I think the first thing is if, if there's a detail that you wish you had more detail on, you're not going to get it. And even if we find things, and the archaeologists, you know, I have friends that are archaeologists who, are, you know, one of my professors in, is in Egypt every year. And what he does is he digs up in the land of Goshen, which is fertile, beautiful soil. He removes all the good soil, sets it to the side. They dig down as far as they can. And then within a couple of months, they have to put all the soil back so that they can start the next harvest. You know, so their digs are so weird because the Israelites were set up in a really fertile land and that's still valuable farmland. Yeah. So why would you let them dig down and, and do their thing? You're probably not going to find the, the all the answers you're looking for, but you also have a ton of reasons to trust the text because what we're seeing in this time frame is that everything is chaotic and crazy. So even if you don't find the answers, it doesn't mean the Bible's not real. I think that's the first thing that I want to say to everybody is if you're like thinking, oh, I wish I could nail this down. You don't need to. It, it doesn't yeah. make the Bible less accurate. It just says, this is the story of the Israelites and the story that we're looking for. That's beautiful. The other thing that I would do is if I'm a Canaanite, so let me just paint a picture for you here. If I'm a, a person, direct descendant from, from Canaan, right, himself. He's the, the grandson of Noah. Noah's son, Ham, has a boy named Canaan. He's the fourth born child. If I'm a, you know, so Canaan lives, Canaan has a kid. That kid grows up and they settle in this region, right? This, this, this area that we would call the, the Levant or the, or the promised land or the hill country of Judea. Any one of those names can be used. You know, the Levant is kind of like right next to the Mediterranean. The, the hill country is all the way up into Jerusalem, all the way to Jordan and then the Transjordan. All those areas, if I'm growing up in that region, it's pretty small. It's farm producing. You know, we're building wall around our little town that my, my granddad has the city and it's, his, it's named after him. And we're building a little wall around it to protect our 50 family members. And then the Egyptians take over, you know, five, six, seven, ten generations down the road. So now we're not allowed to have walls. We're still living there. We're still doing our thing. But now we serve the Egyptians. And then eventually, our, a bunch of our family members want to go down and attack the Egyptians. So we join them, become a Hyksos, go do our thing. Then we get kicked out of Egypt because they don't want us there anymore. So they wipe us out. We head north again. We're living back in the region. Uh, you know, so generations now down the road, we're thinking we want, we want to protect ourselves again. So we start building these massive walls and this massive thing. We're serving Baal. We're doing our thing. We're, we're worshiping our God, doing our thing, uh, just trying to be who we want to be. And then we hear through the grapevine that there's a God who wants us to shape up and do things the right way. 
and we just choose not to over and over. And so from the time of Abraham to the time of the Exodus, we're talking at least 400 years, if not, you know, if not 600 years. And then in that whole period of time, we'd never shape up. We never do what we were asked to do. We kind of deserve what's coming to us. And so whether it's the sea peoples from the, from the east, or sorry, from the west that come down, or whether it's the Israelites themselves that come and judge us, either way, we deserve what's coming our way. And then when it all happens, and you're thinking about just, you know, what do you do with this as, as a group of people? If you're not going to follow the one true God, and you're going to sacrifice your children, or you're going to do something terrible and disgusting and gross because you've just sort of made up these traditions and habits, in my opinion, God has the right to do what God wants to do. And that's easy for me to say because I'm a follower of, of Jesus and I, and I love God and I, I want to do what he wants to do. But evil doesn't deserve to live here forever. And, and yeah. so when I look at this whole time frame and the craziness that's going on, part of that is just utter rebellion against God. And you, just, you should expect complete chaos in the midst of that. And so what I do with the information is when I read it, I go, oh, wow. Okay, so now you've got Abraham, you know, you've got Abraham living there. Years later, you've got Moses living in the region with the Midianites. Moses talks to God himself. God says, I want you to go and I want you to free my people. I want you to be a part of this. It, it should be easier for us to read the rest of this story and go, I have compassion on people in general. I don't want anybody to die. But we gotta we got to do things God's way. Otherwise, consequences happen. So whether that's the Egyptians choosing not to let God be God and they keep pushing back and the 10 plagues happen, or whether it's later on that you've got, you know, the book of Joshua and, and Judges, these are consequences yeah. to our actions. And so what I do with all this information is I, first of all, say I trust the Bible, and second of all, I should do things God's way. And if I'm not going to, then what do I expect? Yeah, that's interesting. And even you think about life today, people don't want to have any rules. They don't want to have any governing authority. They don't want to have any certainly biblical guidance for them. And no, we'll do what we want to do or, you know, Everyone does what was right in their own eyes all right. the time of judges, you know. Um, and yet, yeah, at, at some point, God says, uh-uh, it's, it's time. And yeah. that's why we need Jesus. Yep. One of my professors called it the cup of wrath or the cup of judgment. There's a day coming when that cup's going to get flipped over. And, it, and that's on every nation that's ever existed. There's, there's no nation that's outside yep. of the realm of that. Even Israel is dealt with by God multiple times in this way which is why some of us care so deeply that we do things the right way in this country. And at the same time, if it ceases to exist, we won't be terribly surprised or angered because God's going to do what God's going to do. Yeah. Cling to the grace of Jesus. Jesus.